This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham join me to talk about federal politics. Then, Guardian Australian writer Gabrielle Chan joined me in the studio to talk about her new book, Rusted Off, Why Country Australia is Fed Up. Then, Associate Professor Ed Newbigin, a plant biologist at the University of Melbourne, joined me to talk about his project, The Melbourne Pollen Count, and the recent events of thunderstorm asthma. And finally, Greg Champion, broadcaster, songwriter, and member of the Coulda Been Champions, joined me in the studio to talk about his new book of lyrics, The Thing About Football, The Songs of Greg Champion. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM. This is Amy Mullins with you until noon. And I have with me in the studio Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And he joins me regularly to talk about federal politics. And hello there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? I'm not bad, thank you. And how are you? Yeah, I'm okay, mate. I'm okay. Yeah, we're... Um, a little bit sleep deprived. Yeah, um, both of us. Yes, yeah, I so think, this will be yeah. really um, perhaps entertaining for everyone listening in. Ben, um, let's talk first of all about what we promised uh, to talk about. Yeah, which sure. is one of the um, things that are well, it definitely blindsided me. Um, the fact that the Labor Party, which of course we all know is uh, free trade, and has. Uh, itself in government um, organised and undertaken many free trade agreements. In fact, when Penny Wong was trade minister, she was part of the negotiations for the uh, original Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement framework and uh, that was all done behind closed doors. Um, It was not a transparent process. Uh, We now have the latest version of the deal, which excludes the United States because Donald Trump pulled out of it after he was elected. It's now called um, something horrific, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is like, what? The (laughs) CPTPP. I think there are a few bureaucrats involved in that. Um, Now, Ben, it does involve quite a few uh, diverse countries. We've got Japan and Canada, uh, Mexico, Malaysia, Singapore, Chile, Peru, Vietnam, New Zealand, uh, which is now led by a Labor government, and Brunei. Um, and, I mean, New Zealand has already um, really gone ste- full steam ahead on uh, the TPP, which is what I'm going to call it, not the CPTPP. Um, what happened, Ben, because we were talking about this a few weeks ago, saying how on earth did um, bipartisanship just kind of like emerge out of um, the shadows on this issue? Yeah, okay, so um, a couple of points. Um, firstly, it's not full bipartisanship. Labor says that they will amend um, any treaty that the the coalition signs or they will seek to amend it in parliament before it is uh, fully ratified. Uh, uh, particularly on a couple of issues, investor state dispute settlements, the so-called ISDS provisions, Labor is opposing them, and also Which so they should. Yep, um, these are the provisions that allow foreign companies to sue uh, the Australian government for things like plain packaging tobacco laws. With something that anything that potentially damages their business model and undermines their profitability. Yeah, that's correct, and also they oppose some of the. Uh, 
uh, migration and foreign worker clauses in the in the um, TPP, allowing companies to bring in foreign workers without first checking if there's an Australian who can do the job. So, um, Labor has put those two stipulations on it, but in general, they're in agreement with pushing ahead on the TPP negotiations. Um, And yes, I did do a bit of digging for you, Amy, and the reason is, I think, partly factional and partly ideological. So the factional bit of it is that the the Labor ministers or the Labor shadow ministers who control the relevant portfolios, including Jason Clare, who's the shadow trade minister, they're from the right um, and they support this agreement Um, Mm -hmm. and the ideological component of it is that Labor's economic team uh, which is also basically from the right of the Mm -hmm. party uh, is pro-free trade as you mentioned so they believe in free trade as an economic good they think that it will make Australia richer you know so uh, you get the rhetoric I've got a media release here from Jason Clare Australia is a trading nation he says our economic growth is underpinned by our ability to sell our goods and services overseas so this is the sort of rhetoric that they're running and this is what's underlying their uh, enthusiasm over trade deals yeah but you know one question I have Ben is why this trade agreement we have so many bilateral trade agreements with a range of countries why enter into this specific one which has been dogged with so much uh, controversy and has been so um, you know untransparent in its uh, negotiation and really we still don't know all of what is included in this agreement because uh, the public is not able to view it. Yes, well, uh, I agree. Um, I think you'd have to ask Labor, you know. <laughs> um, but from what I can gather from the digging that I've done, um, it does get back to their belief in the benefits of free trade for the economy. So that that's the position that Jason Clare is staking out with the proviso, of course, that they're not going to enter into some of those more controversial aspects like the ISDS. Well, how then is it going to pass Parliament Well, that's a really good question, I think, because if Labor seeks to amend this stuff, then it's really up to the coalition to vote for or against it, the any amendments that Labor puts up. So you could could get a situation where um, Labor's amendments are voted down and then Labor's given really an up or down vote, whether Mm. it agrees with the TPP or not. I think Labor's reserving that decision for after the next election because they, they're pretty much of the view that these negotiations will take years to, to drag through. So, you know, it's not a problem they have to worry about in the short term. Uh, but I should point out there's been quite a bit of party room anxiety about this and the left of the party is against the TPP, more or less, and they're, they're not very happy with Labor signing up to this at all. Yes, and they have canvassed uh, that they may seek to make amendments um, after the legislation has passed, uh, implying that once they are in government at some point into the uh, future, that they would then seek to make changes that more align with their party room views. Uh, But it seems like a really quite unrealistic plan to have. Yes, and this sort of underlies the problem of these international trade negotiations, which is that the people negotiating them often um, really basically say, well, this is how it's got to be. You know, if we want to get the agreement up internationally, this is what we're going to agree to or not agree to. 
and, and, and really the parliament doesn't have a lot of say except at, right at the end where they get to say yes or no. So um, to what degree Australia will be able to pick and choose the aspects of the TPP that it enters into, I think that's very much an open question and perhaps there's something that you need to get you know, a trade expert in to talk about, Amy, because this is yeah. sort of punching above my weight really here. This is, this is <laughs> a level of expertise that I don't really have. Well, you just... Uh hatched a plan that I already have in action. Excellent, yep. excellent. I have um, an excellent uh, woman I'm hoping to get on from New Zealand who is a uh, trade law expert and is really fascinating on this topic. So hopefully we can look into it in some more detail. Yeah, great. I'll tune in for that for sure. Yes. And now, Ben, let's get to the other controversial issue that's been uh, docking the government at the moment. The ABC has been in the headlines. Of course, we spoke about it last week because Michelle Guthrie had then been sacked, uh, terminated her contract, in fact, by Justin Milne, the chairman of the ABC, presumably by with the support of the board because the chairman doesn't act uh, solely by themselves. They have a, a process of governance. And Justin Milne um, then, you know, really had such a, a lack of support from the government when asked about uh, his position and his conduct. Um, they were really deflecting whether or not they thought Justin Milne should remain, that he uh, then went on ABC 7.30 and, um, you know, on the day that he had resigned to explain himself. Uh, ben, what was his explanation around his conduct and what was a little bit kind of murky or questionable about it? Oh, the whole thing was murky and questionable, Amy. Um, extraordinary week at the National Broadcaster. Um, you know, let's just cut to the chase. Justin Milne's had to resign. Um, and the reason is basically because of an extraordinary leak of documents, of emails that he had sent to Michelle Guthrie, we think leaked by Guthrie or someone from her camp, um, to the board basically saying that um, he had pressured Michelle Guthrie to sack the ABC's business journalist Emma Alberici. Um quite extraordinary revelation that mm. the chairman of the national broadcaster would pressure the managing director of the national broadcaster to fire a journalist because the government is unhappy quote they hate her he wrote in the email so um, i mean this was this was revealing pressure not just from the government but from the chairman of the board itself uh to try and nobble uh, a journalist who'd been critical of a key government policy remember it was a the ember Alberici's article about the government's business tax cuts, cuts to mm. business tax, uh, that had enraged uh, the, the federal government, particularly Malcolm Turnbull, but really the entire coalition. Uh, they saw her as biased. They saw the article as inaccurate. Um, eventually, the ABC did take that article through a complaints process and put it back up, actually. They found yes. that the article was largely factually correct. Um, there are a few minor errors, but uh, the bulk of the article, which was basically saying there's very little evidence that business tax cuts contribute to economic growth or create jobs. Um, and as we've talked about here on the show many times, um, international experience, particularly in the United States, agrees with that where there have been huge business tax cuts in, in America and most of the money has flowed through to shareholders, not to workers and not really to economic growth. Um, therefore... Um, 
we go back to what had happened with with the board and Guthrie. Basically, it looked as though that Milne had pressured uh, the management to try and fire a, a journalist because she was seen as unfriendly to the government. So he that- actually, apparently, this is alleged, of course, said that um, because the government hates her. That's right. They hates. hate her. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and em- Emma Albrecht is the chief economics correspondent for the ABC. She does have a very long uh, line of experience, certainly presenting Late Line, which was one of my favourite shows that I'm still uh, not impressed that was axed. But she was really uh, criticising trickle-down economics, which is a cornerstone of neoliberal economic policy. She was indeed. And I think the government found that intensely uncomfortable um, and, you know, they, uh, the government obviously already dislikes the ABC. Let's be pretty yeah. frank about that. The coalition does not see the ABC as its ideological partner in crime. Uh, they see the ABC as a nest of lefties infested by lovies and um, progressive interests that is inimical to the interests of the coalition. And this, of course, just reinforced that view. So who is Justin Milne? Well, he was appointed by Malcolm Turnbull. He is a friend of Malcolm Turnbull. Um, I guess he, to be totally accurate, he was appointed by Mitch Fifield, mm. the communications minister. He's a friend of Malcolm Turnbull's um, and... The, uh, the process by which he was appointed to the board, of course, didn't go through the appropriate process set up by the previous Labor government. It was just a simple fiat appointment by Mitch Fifield. And this underlines just how the ABC board has been stacked, really, with coalition mm. appointments since 2013. Uh, so Milne resigned. I think his position was always untenable once those emails came out. Uh, but now there are questions being asked about the whole board because part yes. of the ABC charter and the ABC legislation is that the duties of the board are to protect the ABC's independence. So um, it's hard to see how the board has protected the ABC's independence in this in this case, actually. Well, surely they were aware of what was going on, given that presumably they were um, CC'd or included in these emails. It puts every board member um, at risk, really, in terms of who knew what um, and whether they should have raised you know, the red flag and said, hey, something's wrong. It really is up to the board to um, raise their concerns with the chairperson. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of things we don't know about how long the board knew for, um, what was the process they went through. Why did they fire Guthrie? We still haven't had an adequate explanation of that. When Justin Milne no. went on national television to explain, basically what he said was, well... She wasn't the right leadership to take us forward. You know, that's not really a reason. That's just, um, you know, that's just spin, really. Um, So a whole bunch of questions have not been answered and they're going to now be raked through by a departmental inquiry to be chaired by the Secretary of the Communications Department, Mike Murdoch. That will report to none other than Mitch Mitch Fifield. What Um, an independent process that might be. So Fifield I think is worth talking about. He is the communications and arts minister. He is really at the centre of this controversy. He has diligently stacked the ABC board and a number of other boards around his portfolio. He's a veteran coalition operator. Um, He's been actually I think a very effective minister in the sense that he's been able to implement coalition policy with a minimum of fuss and controversy. Mm. He's pretty good at staying out of the news and he's kind of fairly beige 
fairly undistinguished personality um, seems to be quite effective in allowing him to fly under the radar but he's absolutely under scrutiny about his his actions in who he has appointed to the ABC board. Mm. And Senator Tim Storer is very concerned, has raised his concerns very recently about uh, the reappointment or the appointment of a chair and a managing director and the fact that there needs to be... Um, more rigour in terms of the selection process uh, go moving forward before anyone is actually appointed to those roles which are now uh, vacant. We've, of course, got an acting chair, Dr Kirsten Ferguson, who is and was a board member at the time. Um, so I think... You know how much does how much sway does um, Senator Tim Storer and the ALP who agree with him have on this uh, issue? Well, that's a really good question. At the moment, not much because they're not in government. Uh, but were they to change the law of the ABC, the ABC has its own legislation that could potentially, uh, you know, change the appointment of board members. So they'd have to write it into the law, basically, some kind of mechanism for an independent process for ABC board appointments. Um, and perhaps even, I mean, Stora is talking about some kind of US-style confirmation process whereby if there's not some kind of bipartisan agreement over board appointments, then it would go to the Senate and mm. there would be hearings, a little bit like what's been happening in the United States over the Supreme Supreme Court nomination of uh, Brett Kavanaugh. So um, that would, of course, really just confirm the political aspect of the board appointment. I think if it became yeah. to a, a Senate confirmation, then, you know, it would be every bit as controversial and political um, as we might expect in, in a political in, in environment like that. Um, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that before Labor left office in 2013, they had implemented a process for independent board appointments. Um, so they'd, they'd basically come up with a second board to appoint the board, if you like, and that was meant to be merit-based. Now, one of the first things that Malcolm Turnbull did as communications minister in 2013 was then to stack that appointment board. He put uh, uh, Janet Olbrechtson on it um, mm. and, and he put a former deputy head of the New South Wales Liberals on it. Um, and then, of course, the hilarious thing is while that board went through the process of vetting new candidates for the ABC board, Mitch Fifield then just ignored them altogether and it's appointed the people he wanted. So um, there wasn't really much of a process um, for, for these people to get on on the ABC board and, and as a result and of course by the way this has been going on for years and years and years this is not just a coalition problem Labor has been an assiduous stacker of boards with its favoured candidates typically old Labor politicians or old unionists uh, and so this is a problem that crosses the party divide. It does and that's why many government uh, board members uh, always get very nervous around election time depending on who then wins uh, government because often you see uh, people not getting reappointed to board positions and many things happening based on political lines. Um, ben, one of the uh, controversial elements um, that happened over the weekend was Scott Morrison's interview on Insiders when even he almost implied that he would have some level of involvement or influence over the ABC. He said that if the board didn't do their jobs properly, they would be getting some attention from him. That's my <laughs> paraphrasing of yeah. his his uh, comment to Barry Cassidy. I mean, didn't he just, for, like 
prove everyone's point around the fact that there isn't enough rigour and distance uh, between the government and the ABC? I think it's fair to say the government has no conception of the independence of the ABC. They do not like the fact that the ABC is independent. They would like the ABC to answer to the government of the day. And this is in keeping with a lot of the coalition's decisions over the last five years. It's not just the ABC. We've seen it in an, a whole range of different portfolio era, areas where the government has made peremptory decisions with really no process, transparently in the interest of either the Liberal Party itself or the donors to the Liberal Party, um, and where th- there's been an erosion of the independence of the public service. Mm. So things that we've covered on the show, for example, um, looking at Centrelink where they revealed the personal details of a blogger who was critical of Centrelink's robo-debt process, um, really basically just to smear her name in the media, um, where the $444 million given to a coalition-linked environment charity mm. Which we now know Scott Morrison signed off on Scott and Morrison was the person behind. signed off on that. And, and Josh Frydenberg, the current treasurer, was the environment minister of the time. So the, the two most senior people in the government had their fingerprints all over that decision. There was no process, as we know. Uh, the, the charity, the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, as it's called, was not vetted by the department. They didn't even apply for the money. <laughs> so, you know, that's just two examples I could go on and on in this area. Yes, we could go on and on Ben. Um, I guess there's probably so much more we could talk about that um, we might have to leave it there because it'd be opening a can of worms as you just said. Well you've got a jam-packed show Amy so I want to leave time for all your other amazing guests. Oh you're amazing though Ben and I really appreciate you coming in as per usual and having a chat with me. Anytime mate, anytime. That was the wonderful Ben Eltham. He is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. He's also a lecturer at Monash University. You could be taught by Ben Eltham. How exciting is that? I want to sit in on one of his lectures and heckle. Um, you are tuned in on Uncommon Sense on Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM. I'm really delighted to have with me in the studio Gabrielle Chan, who I have been following on Twitter for many years and, uh, of course, value uh, her great journalistic work. She um, was in the press gallery in Canberra for many years and, uh, as I said, conducted uh, the Politics Live blog, which seems like a really intense job to ever have. Um, hopefully one of those medium-term or short-term jobs that one must go through. Uh, she has written a wonderful book called Rusted Off, Why Country Australia is Fed Up. And Gabrielle joins me in the studio. Hi there. Hi, Amy. It's great to have you in here, all the way from country New South Wales. Yeah. Not that far, though. I was surprised to learn in terms of its distance uh, to Canberra, for example. Not at all. Only 90 minutes, but seems like another world away. It does, yeah. And I was we were talking off air. I mean, I part of my... Um, well, I grew up in Ocean Grove, and that is 90 minutes in good traffic to Melbourne. So, um, in, in a sense, it is that kind of... It's close, but then far in the same, you know, sentence in terms of that, um, that travelling that you have to to do if, if people did have to commute between, um, you know, a country area and a major city. It is 
it does take its toll on people for sure, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, although I feel slightly embarrassed because there are people in Sydney where I grew up who uh, live within the city boundary um, and spend an hour and a half in the traffic uh, getting to their place of work or dropping kids at school uh, or childcare. So, you know, they also have big problems. Yeah, and that is a huge problem in Melbourne. It's growing, definitely. Um, I'd well love to talk about your book, but I want to um, start from a personal perspective given that you are coming from a personal perspective and you've, um, you're looking at big issues, but the frame with which you're looking at it is through your town and the people... Uh, in your town and those people that you know. So it's a really um, fascinating way of uh, talking about big picture issues. You yourself um, didn't necessarily grow up in the country, I believe, but you um, fell in love with a farmer. What kind of farming um, does he do or he, did his family do or currently still do? Yeah, he. Um, we have a sheep and wheat farm, essentially. So uh, merinos, uh, crossbred lambs, wheat, canola, a few mixed crops mm. for feed. Mm. And um, how, just given it's so topical, how is the drought affecting um, crops like wheat in your area? Oh, uh, the wheat at this stage, we're fingers crossed for rain, but um, the, it's the canola that's really kind of on the margins. But we are nowhere nearly as badly off as the people further north in the state and mm. obviously in Queensland where uh, I've, I did some drought coverage up there recently and uh, in southwest corner of Queensland they've been seven years in drought in mm. some cases. Yeah, it's interesting to see that it's only, you know, garnered major attention from politicians very, very recently when this is, as we know, droughts are a long-term issue and they don't just come out of nowhere. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I was doing drought stories in 2014. Uh, same drought. Mm, um, exactly. But suddenly it, it fell off the radar. I don't know how that happens, but um, the, pe- the people in Queensland were sort of mildly amused that um, once New South Wales went into serious drought, everyone started talking about ah, it. And that's really about the way politics works and where the influence lies. Mm. Well, we know that uh, many of our Prime Ministers have been New South Wales based um, to, I don't know, some Victorians detriment and of course uh, Queenslanders and Western Australians. I mean, still arguing over the GST and how that's divvied up. Now let's get into your book. Um, I did make sure that I had a quick look through your Instagram because I wanted to visualise the kind of town that um, you are portraying in this book. It's a stunning landscape um, based on the photos that you've taken. I mean, it's constantly must be inspiring to live in a place such as the town that you live in. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a beautiful um, landscape, as you say. The town is quite small, so the town is Harden Murrumburra. I took that's an, a completely other story about yeah. you know that whether I should have named it or not, but I decided to go ahead naming it because you know everyone knows I'm well. You know, people could easily tracked down where I was so I thought no point hiding it. Mm. Um, It is a a town of 2,000 people, 1,000 in the outlying districts and really very much built around the railway and um, so I tell the story of basically the kind of 
uh, introduction of economically rational um, politics, you know, in the 80s and how that changed the railway jobs. Suddenly we lost all our railway jobs, you know, and it changed the kind of core of the town. Mm-hmm. So so the economic debate was I've really talked about through the through the development of that town. Yes, and that's the case for many country towns. I know that, um, you know, the railways were really the most critical infrastructure in these towns and in some of them it's now become almost like this nice little monument to history that doesn't sometimes even work. It's been turned into a rail trail for bike yeah, riders. Yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. We've got our railway bar in the in the museum, you know, it's now a historical kind of curiosity. Mm. Uh, the train obviously still works because we're on the Sydney to Melbourne line but um, there's no one there uh, manning it so you get your little intercom probably like most Victorian know, uh, you know, if there's any issues you have, you speak through an intercom to through someone in a bigger centre, you know, it's completely <laughs> changed. It used to be the absolute core of our town. It had a railway band, you know, mm. all the jobs were government jobs. And so that's, I think that's also at the heart of some of the discontent in that town around government. Mm. And the thing that struck me in particular was your discussion around uh, those who represent people in regional and rural Australia, our politicians and the particular parties and choices that people have. I mean, often the choices aren't really that great and they're not necessarily representing um, the voices of their electorate adequately. And you um, talk about some people in your town who say, well, why don't you, you know, represent what we want rather than what your party is angling for on this particular policy issue? Um, A great example would be the Nationals who are part of a coalition with the Liberal Party and consistently would have to make uh, compromises and they have traditionally been viewed as a type of a country party um, who represents you know, the voice of country Australia but that hasn't necessarily been the case across the board, has it? No, no, and I, I preface this conversation. Of course, there's good MPs in the National Party, mm. but but generally, I'm I'm saying that the lack of political competition has seen seats really taken for granted. I think because because of the coalition agreements where you know National Party or Liberal Party run according to whether it's not it's seen as their seat, mm. um, and then the Labor Party, of course, kind of basically pulled out of the bush in the 80s as they lost seats um, and didn't come back uh, often because, you know, they they had to choose a kind of agenda. City seats are obviously more numerous. Politics is a numbers game. You've got to get the most ha- seats in 150 um, seats in the parliament determines mm. government. So all of those factors play into the fact that, you know, traditionally there hasn't been a lot of competition for these seats. The other issue, of course, is these seats, because of the um, population formula for um, the Australian Electoral Commission, it means they're really big seats. So to have a profile, you know, an independent who wants to contest a seat, for example, needs to have a profile across the seat. And localism, the, the local nature of country living means it's really hard to do. You've the, the, the best examples, I guess, have been, you know, people like 
the independent Peter Andron, who was in central we- the central west of New South Wales, who was a newsreader. That's why he had yeah. a profile. He went in from there. Tony Windsor was a state MP who crossed over to federal and he already had that profile. So mm. all of those issues mean there's not a lot of competition as a result of that, you know, um, some MPs have got very lazy and taken their constituencies for granted. Yeah. And, I mean, Cathy McGowan has a massive electorate in Victoria and she's one of those independents who came not really out of nowhere but seemed to to almost everyone else who doesn't live in her area. But she conducted a massive grassroots community campaign across so many townships um, to successfully, you know, become a federal member of parliament in the lower house. That, but that is a really a rare story to see those independents, as you say, come forward and actually be successful. It's not really the rule. But I'm interested in your um, views around the the change that we saw in, I think it was Wagga, where we have an independent now who's um, won a seat there, who's a doctor um, in the state uh, New South Wales parliament, that that by-election has just occurred. Um, Obviously, there are many controversies around that particular seat, but it was interesting to see that uh, the major parties didn't really have a look in there. Yeah, well, that's there was another case of, um, you know, the coalition taking that seat for granted because there were all sorts of factors there that meant that that was becoming a perfect storm, you Mm. know, uh, for an independent. And those factors were that you had an MP who resigned in really terrible circumstances, uh, the Liberal MP. Um, There was an independent who had a profile from running in the 2011 state campaign, so he was already known. Uh, You had the National Party in that case didn't run because of the coalition agreement. It it was seen to be owned by the Liberals, that seat. Mm. So there was a lack of other competition. Um, And all of those things added up to, you know, the voters of Wagga saying, well, you know what, (laughs) we're not going to go with you as usual. And I think the importance of the McGowan campaign and what Voices for Indi, the grassroots organisation, what they did in Indi can't be underestimated here because all the seats around that electorate are now looking at that electorate and going, well, we can actually do this. Mm. You know, it's not it's not a, a, an impossible task, you know, and it is seen as a bit of a David and Goliath battle because you need, you know, financial resources, you need really good grassroots organisation, you need a good candidate. All of these things can't be underestimated, but people have seen that it can be done. And I don't know if you noticed on social media, there was a bit of tic-tacking between, you know, Joe McGurr and uh, Voices for Indi, you know. They feel like they have a support base there outside of their electorate. Yes. And that psychological effect can't be underestimated either. Mm. And it does remind me that um, I think... That's right. Um, in When Sophie Mirabella was trying to recontest her seat, uh, there were so many people donating to the other, the person who was, um, you know, coming up against her uh, that, you know, from completely outside of the electorate, not even in, in the same state, um, that, you know, there's a lot of support for an independent voice 
in any electorate. I mean, some are certainly more likely to occur than others. Um, it's really interesting that uh, the Ocean Grove is in Karangamite, which is the, now the most marginal seat in Australia, which I'm going to be watching very closely. Um, but, you know, in that particular area, perhaps an independent doesn't have as much of a, a shot because it's usually a tussle between the two parties. But you... Um, one of the reasons why you write this book, I believe, is because you saw the Brexit um, change, which certainly in the British area, uh, the England um, countryside, saw many people vote to leave. In Scotland, um, they voted to remain. Um, and obviously, Scotland's probably predominantly country. It was really interesting to see these kind of movements of people who are very disaffected, particularly um, working class in America, for example, in Pennsylvania, voting for Donald Trump. There seemed to be a bit of a, a movement happening across the globe. And uh, I know that you really wanted to pick up on this and try and examine what was going on and also look at the Australian situation and whether there was any, um, I guess, Lincoln and um, similarity. What is your view in terms of um, how the Australia's situation fits in with the other global movements that have been happening more recently? Yeah, well, as, as you said, um, that was a thing that really got me off my backside to write the book because I thought those communities look a lot like my community, right? Lot High percentage of local born, um, high percentage of uh, working class demographic demographic um, what's going on here but the conclusion that I reach in the in the book is that Australians are very different in the way they view government so Australians are used to a much more active level of government so mm. for my town that meant the government was the major employer uh, so they don't they're not like Americans in the way Americans want government to get out of the way and that Australian want Australians want government you know, on their own terms. So we want government to step in when we need them uh, and then we want them to get out of the way and sometimes they're completely contradictory impulses, right? Mm, yes. So I think the the mistake that a lot of people make when they look at regional electorates is to assume they all swing right. So, yes, they are socially conservative, but they're often economically more kind of centrist or interventionist in, in the way they consider what government should do. Um, so if you look at independent voices, they're not all on the right. I mean, Cathy McGowan is arguing, for example, uh, to get uh, people off Nauru and Manus. Um, Peter Andron argued the same thing. Tony Windsor um, argue, got together... A, a, cross-party uh, committee mm. to look at the issue to see how that, that how that how it could be resolved so it's not at all by any means you know all of these voices on the right I think the commonality is that they want an independent voice that will take their um, their concerns to a parliament they want them to have a go they don't expect them to always win but they want them to have a go and I think mm. that's the thing that unites them you've got Darren Hinch you know Nick Zenner until recently, none of these people had the same uh, policy suites, but they were very good at putting a voice in the parliament and getting that heard. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and I know you talk about the fact that 
you know, in terms of uh, political issues that are important to those who live in country Australia, and as we've said, country Australia isn't one voting block that is all homogenous and having of one view, just like women aren't all the same, which I often find annoying to people making that assumption that all women are going to have a certain preference for something. You talk about the fact that farming isn't the only, you know, it's not the main, it is our priority, but it's not the only priority and it's not the only thing that defines politics and political issues in country towns in Australia. Um, One of the issues that certainly intersects with farming is climate change. In your view and in your experience, um, you know, researching this book and writing it, how um, significant were some of those other issues that we don't often associate with country Australia? Yeah, yeah, the, this was this was a big um, theme, and the thing that stuck out to me when I moved, you know, I assume I, I had all these assumptions about what I would find in a country town, and of course they were all blown out of the water. Mm. Um, no one loves farmers as much as me. I'm married to one um, but it, it struck me as odd that rural MPs would always talk about agriculture and farming. I mean we talk about farmers a lot really yes. when you think about it um, and yes they have been an important part of Australians um, history and also an important kind of contributor to the export markets and all that sort of stuff and um, you know provide a kind of nucleus in a country town but there are all these people that I was seeing you know in my life and raising my kids in a small town who never get talked about by rural MPs they're the people that run the schools, the hospitals, you know, clean up and, and you know, look after the garbage services and do the, you know, public gardens mm. and so the little business owners, the shop fronts that have been there for, you know, many, many years. They're, they're rarely talked about um, by a lot of our rural MPs and, I, mm. and I, they're quite pissed off about it, frankly. Um, And so I think there's a danger of if you just look at through the agricultural lens, you miss out on a whole lot of life in country towns. And when, when I looked at it and had conversations with those people, they're the ones that are actively angry. So everyone across the board is dissatisfied with our political process but it's those groups in the middle so the the people on say government um, payments are just too busy trying to survive day to day right so they're not really engaged in the political conversation as as such but it's that middle group you know working class to um to middle that who are actively angry and i think they're the ones to watch in upcoming elections Mm. well we do have many upcoming elections (laughs) in fact don't we we've got the federal election yeah Yeah, the victorian (laughs) state election the new south wales state election um it will be really interesting to watch one of the things that was interesting to watch in the Liberal leadership spill was how ideology played out, particularly in the National Party, around coal and climate emissions and the fact that Malcolm Turnbull in his final speech highlighted the deep divides that exist within the Liberal and National Party around climate change. Are there people in country Australia, for example, who have moved on, I mean, have just discarded that kind of old um, school kind of approach to climate change and emissions and uh, I guess somewhat aghast at 
you know, the, the current debate that happens and the ongoing to and fro, the political football that is climate change? Yeah, look, one of the points I make in Rusted Off is that really communities, from what I'm seeing, communities are moving ahead of government. And nowhere more so than climate change, um, Indigenous reconciliation is another example I use in the book. Um, on climate change... Ten years ago, I was sitting next to very conservative farmers, some of the members of the Liberal and the National Party who I'd say, what do you think the biggest issue facing farming is? Climate change. Mm. But once it became a partisan issue, especially in that 2013 election where, you know, if you're a Liberal coalition voter, um, you were voting, you know, for axing the carbon tax, people were loath to stick their head up and talk about climate change because it was seen as if you accepted climate science, you must be a Labor voter. Yeah. I think we've moved beyond that now. You know, you're seeing a very effective group called Farmers for Climate Action um, really working hard to uh, raise it as an issue. Obviously, drought has highlighted the conversation around climate change and and um, the National Farmers Federation president, Fiona Simpson, um, came out recently and said uh, climate change is exacerbating droughts, making them longer, mm. making them more frequent. Um, so I think we, we've moved on, you know, out in the community it's moved on. Um, in government, they're still arguing about it. Yeah. And where the National Party goes on this issue will be really interesting because, of course, you know, in places like the Liverpool Plains, um, there has been a real argument between farmers and mi- the mining industry. And, you know, the National Party, while so it has been sort of speaking out of two sides of its mouth here, Nash- um, Barnaby Joyce, who was the member up there in New England, uh, was talking about, you know, we can't have mining on the, on the plains but, you know, did nothing around in that area, you know, while he was agriculture minister and deputy prime minister. Mm. So so which way they go on this will, will split. And, of course, in Queensland, you know, you've got George Christensen, also a National Party member who's, um, you know, worried about miners' jobs, Matt Canavan, resources uh, minister, talking about mining as well. So there's this real kind of split at the heart of the National Party over where they're going to go on this and um, I think farmers will be pushing them hard at the next election. Yeah, well, that was a massive issue when um, Tony Windsor put his hat back in the ring to try and unseat Barnaby Joyce after that citizenship debacle. Um, And I know the Liverpool Plains was really uh, highlighted because it's such an important um, area for Australian agricultural food production in particular and you know once you've undermined the the land that we're using it's very hard to um, repair it and get it back to a usable um, you know highly uh, fertilized and useful crop kind of land mm-hmm. I mean yeah these are some of the issues that I guess those in the city may not be really across in terms of why they're so important and why people are so very passionate about uh, things that appear to be environmental issues. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and the most interesting trend in rural seats, and you saw it in, in the Liverpool Plains, there were farmers there, like very, very conservative farmers, uh, one of whom uh, tried to run as a green, Greens candidate on the north coast at uh, Bentley, 
um, where there was coal seam gas mining, which was subsequently stopped. Um, though the seats up there, one of them went straight from National Party to to Greens, being held by the Greens Party. Mm. So it didn't even go through the normal spectrum <laughs> of you know Liberal, Labor, Greens. It went straight from National Party to Greens, and everyone was like, "What's going on there?" <laughs> uh, so you know. It, these I keep saying these seats are the ones to watch at yeah. the next federal election. I won't be going anywhere near a city seat. I'll be staying yeah. in the country. And I think in your Victorian election, there's going to be some really interesting independents come out of the woodwork over the next uh, couple of uh, weeks leading mm. up to the state election uh, in rural seats because I think what Voices Friend I and Cathy McGowan have done there is uh, quite infectious by the look of things. It is, yeah. We have seen um, even just around uh, the Bellarine Peninsula and Geelong, a range of new independent candidates, some for the Reason Party, which was before formerly the Sex Party. Um, one one person who is the mayor of Geelong, um, very colourful mayor of Geelong, who now wants to run as an independent uh, against Christine Cousins. Um, so there's, yet, yeah, as you said, so many new and emerging candidates. Even Catherine Devaney has decided to run for a city seat um, under Reason Party. Uh, I am speaking with Gabrielle Chan, who is the author of Rusted Off, Why Country Australia is Fed Up. I know we're running a little bit um, out of time, but I want to uh, just quickly, I guess, close out our discussion uh, talking about, I mean, some of the people that make up country Australia and what makes it diverse and what makes it interesting and perhaps so that we can illuminate or make it relatable for some people who possibly only get to country Australia for a holiday or drive past it on the highway to another destination. What are some of the, I guess, things that have struck you living in a a smaller town in New South Wales on a farm and um, the kind of people that you've got to know and become friends with? Yeah, um, I guess uh, the kind of local nature of of those towns, I had assumed that, you know, everyone would would be pushing outwards, I guess, looking outwards. Um, I think the thing, the issues that really brought home to me the idea that place was so important to people were uh, people who maybe, you know, every, every year our little primary school takes a group of kids from year six to the city mm-hmm. and and it's a you know year, year six uh leadership conference and the reason we do that is to expose those kids to other things now every year there are kids who have never been to sydney before we're three and a half hours to sydney um i took a, a 20 year old who uh was had no family basically who could who could do this she had a a major health issue I took her to Canberra we're 90 minutes away from Canberra that 20 year old she had never been to Canberra before so so you you expect that um people uh move out of their small towns often place is the most important thing to them so when government overlays these kind of policy uh decisions like i think in the 2014 budget there was um the decree or or the attempted decree it never got through the senate that um young people wouldn't get unemployment benefits for the first six months Mm. um I, i i rang a few government mps and said um listen 
how does a kid in a small town, you know, go without benefits? Um, and and the answer was, well, they have to move to the city if they can't get a job, right? Yeah. They've ne- you know, what about the kids that have never been to the city or mm. have no support in a city or and have no no benefits to live on in a city? You know, that that kind of policy template was really the thing that upset people the most. The education divide is another big one. The yep. difference in in opportunities at a small country town compared to, you know, a big city school is vast and crossing that cultural divide is often really difficult. Now, so a lot of people do it, obviously, um, but it, it is very daunting for a lot of kids in country schools. So, Increasing the conversation between city and country, I think, is the is the most important thing. And I think what annoys me about some rural representation is the talking up of the divide and the you know the, your biggest problem is the inner city latte sipper. Yeah. Well, it's not. You know, if but if you use that that person as the baddie. It's a way of avoiding the more complex policy debates at, at how to bridge these divides. You know, mm. I think if, if you know, you're talking up city people as the baddies all the time, you're, you're obviously going to fall into the arms of the country party, whoever it may be, um, you know, as, the, as your saviour. Actually, we need more cohesion between city and country. We don't need less. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really lazy thing, isn't it, to fall back on stereotypes. And certainly when you don't have your own personal experience to draw on to challenge the stereotypes you're given... Um, I know that I'm in one of those lucky positions like you to have um, known and lived in areas that are coastal and country and also city. So we have a much, I guess, richer view of Australians and we're kind of lucky to be in that position to know the strengths and benefits of all, all types of living in different areas in Australia. And, you know, I know I've only just scratched the surface of even country Victoria in terms of my understanding and um, and experience of it. Yeah, you know that narrative, Amy, that, um, you know, we're either rednecks or salt of the earth and nothing mm. in between. It's, it drives me up the wall. Or as one dairy farmer said to me, you know, we're either superheroes or peasants and, yeah. and nothing in between. So yeah. it's, um, you know, I think we have to get a little more more sort of deeper into the conversation uh, rather than resorting to kind of cartoonish characters. And that goes for city people as well, you know. I mean, lots of people have lots of different life experiences and, Mm. and you can't discount that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Gabrielle, it's been really wonderful speaking with you. And I hope people can engage more deeply in the nuance, as you've said, um, by reading this book, Rusted Off, which is, uh, I love the the kind of, I guess, secondary title, which is Why Country Australia is Fed Up. I think it does accurately capture that disaffection and um, we should be listening and not just listening, but um, supporting people in the country ourselves and actually going there seeing it for ourselves. Absolutely. And the other thing I say in the book is, you know, country towns shouldn't just be victims, you know, that... We, we can offer solutions to city people who are fed up with their problems mm. as well. You're seeing it in rural Victoria now. Um, a lot of people moving out in the latest census, moving out of Melbourne into uh, country villages and towns. Exactly. It's getting more and more relevant. Um, that was Gabrielle Chan, who is the author of Rusted Off Why Australia is 
why country Australia, that's the most important part, is fed up and it's out through Penguin. Uh, and of course, you can listen back to that interview, which will be podcasted and it's uh, available on On Demand later today. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM. This is Amy Mullins with you up until noon. I'm really uh, delighted to have with me on the phone Associate Professor Ed Newbigin. He is a plant biologist um, and he is also uh, the coordinator of the Melbourne Pollen Count Project, uh, which... I think it really um, was so important and useful last year. It's just relaunched um, this year in October because spring is in the air, as I said. And uh, and I have uh, Ed on the phone with me now to talk everything, <clears throat> excuse me, pollen and asthma. So hi there, Ed. Hi, Amy. How are you, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, thanks. Like you, you sound like you've got a bit of a... A cold or a, a croak in your throat? Uh, it sometimes happens. It's very irritating to me. I actually did start coughing earlier in the show off air because I started having a bit of an asthma moment. Um, oh. So it's perfect timing, really, to talk about this. And uh, and one of the things I was just mentioning off air with you is that um, I really have a personal experience um, relating to this, which I'm sure many other Victorians and Melburnians have um, in terms of hay fever and asthma and that interesting link um, between pollen and uh, the bronchoconstriction that can occur uh, for people who suffer from asthma. I, I know that um, the the major thunderstorm asthma event that we had more recently uh, really highlighted the fact that there are some people who do not have asthma, um, who do get asthma as an adult, uh, and, and that can be triggered by a range of factors, including mm. pollen and that, um, you know, the combination of factors that come together in such a storm that is a thunderstorm asthma. And then, of course, as you were saying off air, things like respiratory infections as well. Um, could you, yeah. first of all, explain... Um, what we're talking about when we talk about thunderstorm asthma and then we'll move into, I guess, the other elements involved here. Okay, so thunderstorm asthma is uh, an acute event. Uh, it's usually uh, it's noticed or it's, it's most obvious because there is a surge of people uh, seeking a emergen- emergency medical assistance for respiratory diseases, typically at a hospital, uh, and it often follows a thunderstorm. So it's a, the title thunderstorm asthma is very descriptive Um, these sort of outbreaks are rare across the world Uh, we know that they do occur across the world so there have been 22 outbreaks of this internationally but a large number of those have actually occurred in melbourne so there have been uh, events going back to 1984 uh, that we know about uh, have occurred in melbourne so even though we describe it as being a rare event for Melbourne, it's actually a, a fairly regular seasonal event, uh, and we know about maybe uh, half a dozen or more events of thunderstorm asthma that have occurred in Melbourne uh, in the last 30 years, um, and so to give that some sort of context, that's half a dozen events in 30 years, and uh, the Hawthorne Football Club, I think, has won nine premierships in that time, so it occurs about as regularly as Hawthorne wins a premiership uh, <laughs> That's an excellent analogy. 
Yeah, a lot of people think that's probably too often. Uh, but Far too often. Mm. <laughs> uh, we will be getting to some um, Hawthorne bashing songs later in the show when I get <laughs> Greg Champion in to uh, sing some football songs. So thank you for um, okay. priming the audience uh, with that. Um, now, Ed, uh, in terms of the... Uh, pollen, I guess, that's in the air in in spring, um, in mm-hmm. particular in spring, but presumably pollen doesn't just happen in spring. Um, mm. What is pollen uh, and where is it originating from and, and where in particular is it most problematic in terms of things like asthma and hay fever? Okay, so pollen is part of the reproductive life cycle of plants, so uh, the closest analogy... Uh, the closest analogy in, in human terms would be human sperm. So it's the, the male gamete of uh, flowering plants, uh, and some plants, uh, as we famously know, use birds and bees to move their pollen around between uh, from plant to plant, uh, and some plants use the wind to carry it around. And those plants that use the wind produce large amounts of pollen because uh, it's just getting carried wherever it will. Uh, and so they, they, these flowers produce a lot of pollen uh, and when you've got a lot of plants that can uh, mean that the exposure to that particular type of pollen uh, can be quite high. So yes, we do get pollen across uh, a lot of the year but it's uh, most noticeable at this time of year when a lot of plants are starting to flower. So a lot of plants synchronise their breeding cycles around uh, the end of winter coming into spring uh, and then before the spring turns into summer when there's often too little water around for anything. The plants that are most problem for people uh, in Australia are the grasses. Uh, So um, Australia famously rides on the sheep's back or used to and those sheep were sustained by large acreages of grass and it's those that uh, the grasses, the pasture grasses, which uh, sustain those populations of grazing animals, which are the main source of our problems. So people driving across western Victoria are going over past acre after acre of uh, pasture grasses, and those pasture grasses are just starting to come into flower uh, at this time of year. So maybe over the next few weeks uh, we'll start to see uh, more grass pollen coming into Melbourne uh, and they'll reach their highest peak in November. Uh, And that peak in November uh, coincides with a peak of people presenting to uh, hospitals with respiratory problems for asthma, and it also coincides with the peak of thunderstorm asthma. So all of our thunderstorm asthma uh, events occur within uh, a very short period of time towards from the end of October through to about the end of November. Mm. And I know it certainly makes a lot of people who already have asthma nervous um, when it gets to spring because um, one doesn't necessarily know when an asthma attack is going to come on. Um, and and also, as we've just mentioned there, that there are quite a lot of people in the population who haven't necessarily been diagnosed with asthma or hay fever. But um, as some of the professors, medical professors, Uh, have been speaking about, there is, uh, I guess, a genetic predisposition in some people to potentially eventually develop um, antigens and antibodies that cause asthma um, that may not yet have been triggered. 
that's right. So some people have got... So uh, about 11% of Australians have asthma, uh, and about 80% of those people also have hay fever. So the two conditions are uh, related to one another. They're very closely related, uh, and they often share the same sorts of triggers. So people who have got hay fever, which includes about 18% of, of Australians will have self-diagnosed with uh, hay fever, a lot of those people will also have an underlying asthmatic, undiagnosed asthmatic condition. So and if the circumstances are extreme enough, then that can trigger their first asthma attack. And a, a good example of a really extreme condition for um, asthma would be a thunderstorm asthma event. So about a third of the people who presented to hospitals uh, on that particular date in November 2016, about a third of those people did not realise that they had asthma. They just thought that they had hay fever, but they had an underlying uh, asthmatic condition. Mm. And I think that's potentially what causes uh, a big risk is the people who are unaware that they have asthma or it's yet to be triggered and is triggered mm. by such an event, an extreme event yeah. like thunderstorm asthma. Um, yeah. I certainly knew, know that I was caught off guard um, given that if one doesn't have asthma, one isn't necessarily carrying around Ventolin uh, in their handbag or pocket uh, awaiting a, an asthma attack. Um, and yeah. so that's something which, you know, this type, these types of discussions around public awareness and education is really important because it can, it can happen to uh, anyone really. Yeah, absolutely. So lots of people can... Uh, probably do have un undiagnosed asthma uh, and for them uh, and we tend to be a bit dismissive of hay fever as being oh it's just hay fever it's a, uh, a, a few sneezes here and there I'm not going to do very much about it but it, it can be a it's a chronic condition it can uh, it's easily treatable it's easily preventable with a few simple steps and if you are managing your hay fever better even if you are an asthmatic and and you have some hay fever, if you're managing your hay fever better, you're going to be managing your asthma better as well. So the two things, uh, the, the drugs that get used to treat hay fever are exactly the same drugs that are used to treat asthma. So if you're treating your hay fever well and managing your hay fever, you're going to have a, uh, a better experience of spring, be able to enjoy things, get better sleep, be better focused at work or it's, uh, in your study, whatever it might be. But you're also going to be... Uh, uh, better prepared if there is an event of thunderstorm asthma doesn't occur very often but if there is thunderstorm asthma it's going to be a, a better you're going to have a more resilient better able to cope with that than if you are not treating your uh, asthma or hay fever at all yes and um it certainly also raises a good point there that um you really need to be uh more preventative in your approach when it comes to things like uh, pollen-induced or hay fever-induced asthma uh, because, you know, sometimes you're really just trying to catch up um, once you've already got that and you're you're trying to treat it after the fact. Um, and there are some really obviously great strategies that uh, people's GPs can recommend if they um, find that they're struggling. Um, but certainly some of the things that are just widely practiced 
among those with asthma are things like uh, preventers, preventer inhalers that they use on a daily basis in the lead up to spring and all throughout spring and sometimes even throughout the year, uh, as well as steroidal nasal uh, sprays yep, that are, are very effective. All those are very important. Yeah. So it's about being, this is a, uh, a time of year when we do experience hay fever and asthma. Uh, and if you know that you're liable to be, uh, have worse symptoms at this time of year, just being prepared uh, is the easiest way of, of dealing with it. You talk, if you've got asthma, make sure you've got an asthma management plan in place. If you have hay fever, a few very simple steps will mean that you're going to have a much better spring than if you're uh, unprotected or unprepared for it. Indeed. And to also properly diagnose um, one's asthma if that's what you suspect is the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you ha- think you have asthma, uh, make enough time to see your GP. <laughs> We're all very busy people. We never seem to have enough time for these sort of things. But it's one of those things which is very easily managed. Uh, but if it's not managed, it can um, develop into other conditions which can uh, be more chronic as you get older. Indeed. And um, and certainly for, for those who don't have asthma um, and may not be aware of the types mm. of um, things that pollen in particular can cause, um, you know, I mentioned uh, bronchoconstriction, which is one of those medical terms that um, mm-hmm. is perhaps not easily understandable. But what is that, that mechanism that's happening um, biologically in people's bodies when um, pollen starts to trigger an asthma episode where one, you know, is coughing, perhaps can't breathe, that kind of thing? Mm. Yeah, so these are um, these are uh, the immune system uh, responding inappropriately to things in the environment. So the immune system uh, defends us against all sorts of infectious diseases and so on, and it's constantly monitoring uh, the environment for incoming infectious diseases. For whatever reason, uh, often it latches onto things which are not. Uh, particularly dangerous such as pollen uh, animal dander is another thing which it can latch onto, and it will start an immune response which is designed to protect the body against this incoming disease so hay fever is uh, sneezing and, and tearing up of the eyes and so on uh, which are all intended to um, you know wash bacteria wash uh, disease causing organisms away from the body that's what's happening there it, when we've got particles which are small enough, so if we're talking about a pollen grain, we're talking about quite a large particle which can't get into the lungs. When, if we've got uh, a smaller particle which can get into the lungs, then that's where it can cause an immune response in the lungs which is going to result in inflammation of the tissues of the lung and it's going to cause that uh, bronchial constriction, that tightness of the chest that you referred to. So again, it's that immune response uh, occurring against something which is not actually all that dangerous to the body. Indeed. And um, I just want to uh, touch on the Melbourne Pollen Count website and app because this is such a really important tool that um, I know many people last year found found very, very helpful. And I know that the University of Melbourne is playing a key role in this uh, particular project with um, some other organisations. Could you share a bit about um, how that... Uh, the, the project, I guess, came about and exactly what it's providing. Okay, so the, the, I've been running the Melbourne Pollen Count for about 20 years and uh, uh, a few years ago now, um, 
I had a uh, associated with another project that I was doing, uh, a more basic research project. I had had the good fortune of uh, uh, becoming a uh, hiring a as a researcher with me, a guy called Ed Lampagnani, who's uh, been a, a real inspiration and, and a driving force for a lot of this stuff. Uh, he came along and um, we were trying to get pollen information out through the newspapers and media and so on, uh, and he said, well, why don't you establish a Twitter feed? And I thought, well, what's a Twitter feed? I have no idea what Twitter is. <laughs> so he started to develop all of the infrastructures uh, apart from being a very good uh, biological researcher, he's also a good coder. So he can uh, develop all the software and so on. It started off fairly simple, uh, developing web pages and so on, and that's now developed into a system which, uh, the Melbourne Pollen Count system, which um, has very close interactions now with the Bureau of Meteorology. We, uh, working with another researcher here called Jeremy Silver, who's in Earth Sciences and is an excellent um, person with atmospheric physics, has developed uh, a very good statistical model for grass pollen uh, forecasting. And that's the forecast, his, Jeremy's forecast models are the ones which are being used now by the Bureau of Meteorology uh, as part of the uh, thunderstorm asthma system. So we've got the research around grass pollen, uh, lots of data from the 20 years or so that I've been doing this, the wonderful uh, IT platforms that ES developed, uh, the website melbournepollen.com.au and the app, which is a free download that you can get and use, uh, that's all being developed. And now we've got this integration with the Bureau of Meteorology uh, uh, who do the severe weather forecasting, so... Um, they're the people that take the pollen forecast, combine it with the forecast for severe uh, weather, uh, and that's where that's the basis of the thunderstorm asthma forecast. So they're looking for particular types of thunderstorms, uh, these gusty types of thunderstorms with lots of wind which is coming out of them. Those are the same sort of thunderstorms that we had on uh, November of 2016. Uh, in that case, it moved across the state from west to east uh, like a broom, quite a linear array of uh, thunderstorm moved across with these gusting winds and that was uh, important in giving a in, in generating the thunderstorm asthma event uh, of that of that day so the whole system has come together so beautifully it almost looks like it's planned but it's lots of little things which happened here and there uh, and uh, have come together to make a, a really powerful and strong thunderstorm asthma forecasting system which is unique in the world and uh, will continue to develop from here into something which is really useful and is uh, having an enormous impact not only on around thunderstorm asthma but also for emergency systems across the state. Mm, it's so important and it's great to see that your work that you have been doing for such a long time, getting um, that practical usage that is really vital um, to, to everyone here and I'm sure would be a great model for other countries to pick up as, as well as other states. Yeah, I, I know that there's a lot of people around the world and other places in Australia uh, are looking at this to see what they can learn from what uh, is being developed here in Victoria. So we know that uh, thunderstorm asthma uh, doesn't just occur in Melbourne. Uh, we know of 
uh, outbreaks of thunderstorm asthma up along in, inland New South Wales. So there are other places within, the, within Australia where it can occur, and we know that there are other places in uh, the world where it can occur. So there have been outbreaks of thunderstorm asthma in England and so on. Nothing quite as bad as the one here in 2016, but uh, certainly these are the same sorts of um, scenarios occur. Lots of people suddenly seeking emergency advice or emergency help after a thunderstorm and that puts a real load on the emergency system's capacity to respond uh, and uh, a lot of them, um, health systems would like to better manage those sorts of loads and better prepare for them. They're not things which they trained for at all. They're, you know, car crashes, even terrorist attacks and things like that are, are things which they rehearse, but they don't rehearse for things like this which are not geographically localised, where they can occur across a huge geographical range, in the case of 2016 here, across most of the state. Yeah. So how do you respond to something like that? Exactly. And I just want to mention that the um, pollen stations, the pollen count stations have uh, expanded this year mm -hmm. in the app, which is great to see um, that it covers Bendigo, Burwood, Churchill, Creswick, Dookie, Geelong, Hamilton and Melbourne. So um, there's certainly, I'm sure, a pollen count station for um, everyone. Yeah, I think hopefully we've got a lot of the state covered and... Um there could always be more, but this is a pretty good coverage um, mm. by world standards of, of pollen counts, and it's really being used to validate the forecasts that we're producing and also give us more information. So each of these pollen stations, we get information about the grass pollen, which is so important for the thunderstorm asthma forecasts, but we're also seeing other types of pollen as well, and we're trying to relate that to other types of respiratory conditions, hay fever and asthma and so on. So it'll be driving research across into these things uh, for Victoria, and we hope that down the track they'll benefit Victorians uh, in all sorts of ways as well. Thank you so much, uh, Ed, for everything you're doing on this issue. Um, it's really another great example of where uh, academia is making huge uh, impacts on everyday life. Well, thank you very much for those kind words, Amy. Thank you. I absolutely do mean those. And uh, that was Associate Professor Ed Newbigin from the University of Melbourne. He is a plant biologist who's been working on a pollen count for, as he said, about 20 years. And uh, now you can utilise the data that is being collected yourself um, through the Melbourne Pollen Count app and website and their Twitter feed, which is at Melbourne Pollen. Um, it's really, yeah, so life-changing to see um, and you can basically predict uh, whether the pollen count will be high, medium or low throughout um, the week. So it's a great app to use. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. You are tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. Uh, I'm really delighted to have with me in the studio Greg Champion. He is a champion. He's a could have been champion, in fact. Um, he. 
He started his uh, broadcasting life at Triple R and I was absolutely in shock that he hasn't been back for that many times. I don't know where the invitation got lost, but I decided that I absolutely had to rectify things. Hi there, Greg. Yeah, I feel um, you're making me feel young again uh, <laughs> just to be here. Um, I think I can remember once being here in the last 20 odd years. So uh, it hasn't been perhaps once in 20 years and it was with Stephen Downs. Amazing. Yeah. I can't believe it. Um, I thought they'd just trot you out every time we needed to talk up how great Triple R is. <laughs> well, yeah, we could be we could be ambassadors. We could be yeah. roving ambassadors for Triple R. Certainly uh, could have been too conscious of the fact that uh, Triple R has uh, uh, um, given us the springboard or given us a start in life and plenty of others too. Yes, and exactly. You have had such an, a fascinating a journey in terms of the different radio stations you've been involved with. Um, could you just, for people who aren't aware, mm. talk about how the Kuda Beans came to be on Triple R because mm. there are uh, certainly original members mm. still in existence in this uh, wonderful group of guys who get together on a Saturday morning to talk football. The team's fairly uh, original in all. In total, um, two chaps met at uni and decided to approach Triple R. They thought they could do a funny football show. <laughs> they probably made each other laugh talking about football. Yeah. And they thought, we'll go to Triple R with this. And to their horror, he said, Reese Lampshed said, you can start this Saturday. <laughs> and then they packed it. Yeah. And so they had to. They had a few days to do their first show and uh, uh, <laughs> nervous, and it, and it grew from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, even your uh, songs have really had a re- fascinating organic kind of evolution. I know you started out um, reciting poems or coming up with poems about yeah. football, which then morphed into short songs. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's true. I'd met Billy Baxter before the Coulda Beans and Ian Cover, and... Billy had a show on Thursday morning yeah. for quite some time. So Billy was a Triple R veteran and I know Archie remembers him very well. Yes. And Billy, um, I said to Billy, I've been writing football poems and he invited me on to do them on his show and then he said, I'm going to introduce you to the Coulda Beans and that is how I met I started being on the Coulda Beans. Amazing. And what age were you? Not that I'm trying to... 27. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, everybody in the Kuta Beans is in a very tight zone of two or three years. Yeah. So they're all, they were all that age then. That's so awesome. Yeah, I guess probably a similar age to when I began. Yeah. Yeah. So nothing's too different. No. In that respect. Yeah. And, like, in terms of the places that you've been, um, you've been everywhere, man, almost. Um, you've been at the ABC and then you went to 3AW and then back to the ABC. Yeah. So, you know, you've had uh, exposure to community radio, commercial radio and public broadcasting. Yep. And and after we left Triple R, we were just a weekend show and so we don't have a whole lot to do with the organisations. And we don't, we come in on the weekend, we don't get in on during the week uh, very much at all. Mm. Therefore, we uh, bypass the politics and the people, and, <laughs> and also we've been uh, left free to do what we want. Whether it was at Triple R or AEW or ABC, we've had virtually no. 
uh, instructions on how to change anything or adjust anything. Yeah. We've been we've been given free reign. No government interference. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Probably not from Scott Morrison, given he seemed to look pretty bored when they kept cutting to him during the grand final because I know he's a rugby fan. Yes, yes well, uh, no, the chairman didn't ever sack us. No one ever sacked us <laughs> like they did the boss of OBC last week and 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 people ask us, uh, 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 the could have been in danger from ABC budget cuts and the answer is they wouldn't save anything. <laughs> So, so we've seen yeah. off. We have. We we like to have a chuckle. We've seen off a few managers in our time. You sure have. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the outside broadcast at the end of the year is a big highlight. Mm. Um, I made it down last year just for that. I definitely did not have a ticket to the grand final, mm. um, but it's mm. really fun because then you get to see mm. just what a community is around the show and your songs, and really the types of collaborations that you have with so many listeners who've been listening to your show and contributing to your songs over many, many years. Um, I think, uh, is it Noel Dennison is one mm-hmm. of those one. who one. I often hear? There's a key, there's a core of about eight or nine and we've fostered the core. We've uh, looked for those who show the most uh, uh, talent and nurture them. And so, yes, <laughs> Uh, there's a couple of girls in there, Jane Harris and Patty from Reservoir and Pamela Sherpa. And then, uh, yes, the chaps, uh, yeah, uh, Richard, Richard Evans, who lives in Ocean Grove. Oh, wow. He's, our, he's the number one uh, successful contributor. Carrying the card for Ocean Grove. Indeed. I'm loving that. Yeah. Um, so really, in terms of for people who aren't aware uh, – you you do sing many songs throughout the show in different parts of the show, both the first hour and the second hour, mm. and you talk a little bit about the backstory and the different contributors, mm. um, and they are based on usually pre-existing tunes, so it's uh, much easier to sing along, um, which I'm sure you know many of your colleagues then are the great backing vocalists. Um, some obviously vary in their differing ideas of pitch, but that's okay. <laughs> so what's happened there was Billy can sing. Yeah, all right. Billy Baxter can sing and he's only been back on the team for 15 years. Um, what happened was our young producer, who's now been with us for 13 years, he's 33 years old, I think, he can sing. This is Andy Billiers. That's Andy Billiers. Yep. So between Billy and Andy, we give them the lion's share of the duties, sing along. <laughs> and that's why sing along has uh, expanded in the last two or three years. It's become much more a sing along idea, mm. the footy songs, because uh, we get Billy and Andy to uh, help out. And the others um, get in the background and have a dip. That's excellent. And I know that, for example, one of the great examples of your sing-along kind of atmosphere is on the Father's Day special, uh, which I attended last year as a gift for my birthday. So there you go. And I did meet you. And I think the funniest thing was you said, you're not our traditional demographic. I was thinking that just now. Yeah. As you say it. You can thank my dad for the brainwashing that occurred as a youngster, um, which I'm, I'm very thankful for. For, yeah. uh, because it means I have, um, you know, grown up on the Kuta Beans, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Um, when we meet uh, 
there could have been, uh, I'm a big pardon, the ABC's listening audience is a fairly uh, well-defined uh, sort of middle-aged and up. Yeah, And, yes. um, you know, amongst could have been listeners, you know, it's, no, I was going to say there'd be more males, but I could be wrong about mm. that. But certainly fem- women uh, in the sort of sub-40 zone is not uh, a uh, not our biggest group, <laughs> so we need everyone we can get yep. in that area. Oh, uh, well, I'm recruiting. Yeah, you'll do. <laughs> Just one's on, is yeah. good. No, I'm very, very proud to be a Coulda Beans listener. Uh, it definitely is the highlight of my Saturday and um, definitely the talk back gets me mm. every time. Yeah. Absolutely love it. I did wonder whether Nige from North Fitzroy would be a Triple R subscriber. He, he should be if he's... Um, Across uh, radio, as well as he is as he is across ideation, yeah, and uh, those other buzz terms he uses, pre-game and uh, and uh, in inter-game activations. <laughs> he's got it all down, and this is why Nige from North Fitzroy is good for the Kudamins because yeah. he, he is a he's a different de- uh, age group, he's a different generation to the Kudamins, <laughs> but he understands that stuff. And he goes for the Fremantles, ironically, ironically, of course. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly. That was the first time he called, he, he said that. Yes. So that, some of those gags just stick. They do. Mm. Uh, they stick in my mind. I was really impressed that he had a wedding to go to on grand final day. That's another <laughs> Nige classic, isn't yeah. it? Um, so Nige is uh, fun because he's... Uh, he doesn't really get football so, at all. Yeah, um, uh, but and, uh, but uh, yeah, and Pearl, of course, is very popular. Yes, Pearl from the Peninsula, the Mornington one, not the Ballerine one, of <laughs> course. I always know. But and it, Source from Sea Lake, mm. I'm really a big fan of. He's growing in stature too. He's a mm. farmer who's always. Uh, uh, complaining, no, not so much whinging, but uh, he's looking down on the city people and and uh, he's telling us that we wouldn't know what's going on. We've never had to take the tickets on the gate, li- mark the lines on Saturday morning, run the run yeah. the uh, kiosk with the ladies and collect the empty glasses and do everything that they do at Country Football And his class. son Trevor that does absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so these are the characters that ring the could have been. Yeah. And, and, yes, they, it is, a, you know, perhaps the uh, most popular part of the program or close to it. Yes, and it really does highlight, I guess, a bit of an approach which is to take the mickey in the NPW, which you say is the nicest possible way, Mm. which we should probably preface before we get into singing some of the songs because Mm -hmm. it's great that um, we can have a a laugh about football Mm. and really enjoy it. Mm. And, you know, we do take it quite seriously. I know I certainly can take it very seriously, Mm. but I really enjoy the way that you all approach football and and these songs are a great example of that. Um, I'd love to just quickly ask before we jump into songs, Mm. this book that you have, which is called The Thing About Football, The Songs of Greg Champion, It features around 150 songs. And I've listened to some of your recent interviews where you say it's about 4,000, 4,500 mm. over the, the t- t- period of your show, which is a massive amount of songs. Mm. How on earth did you select them? Um, well, they had to had to have some depth, some some uh, you know a, a, a majority of these ditties. Uh, 
you know, are throwaways or they don't read as well on paper as they might sound on air. So they have to look, have to read well and mm. have a little bit of a modicum of intelligence about them perhaps. Um, so you're looking for the, dare I say, the deeper ones um, or just in some cases the most popular ones. Yes, and the ones that are pretty timeless. There are quite a few timeless, particularly, um, I would say, Melbourne and MCC songs, which will never go out of style. Some some Melbourne fans think they have and should. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> One, well, I think what is um, the peak of Melbourne and MCC is the, that combo, the very amazing combo, which is the cheeseboard song. It brings mm. the Melbourne fans who are members of the MCC, and as I'm, I should spell this out to those who aren't mm. necessarily into football, it's the Melbourne Cricket Club, mm. a highly exclusive club of which I am still on the waiting list and will be, I called up I think a week and a half ago and I'm about five years away from a provisional membership wow, which is the one before the restricted membership, before the wow. full membership. So. Goodness, you might as well give it away and go I surfing. Know, exactly. <laughs> surfing at Ocean Grove. Yeah, yeah. So um, Greg, what are some of your favourite songs mm. over the years? You know, What really mm. stick out for you? Look, uh, when I asked... The song VFL Park in the Dark has a special place for me mm. um, because it is an original tune that sounds... <laughs> people often email and say, what's the, what's the tune of that song? What uh, Are you parodying there? Yeah. But uh, it might sound uh, like an, a familiar tune, but uh, it's an original one. So that's a favourite. It was way back in about 1990 and um, it's got a big um, sort of Van Morrison feel. And that's... Mm. Uh, I'd been listening to Van Morrison and that's clearly... Uh, uh, coming through in the song, in the tune. Um, so that's a favourite. Um, if I have to name favourites over the decades, gee, uh, I might struggle. Um, but I do have a soft spot for Witchy Proof Lineman, and that's probably because it's such an excellent classic song originally mm. that by just twisting it a bit to be about Witchy Proof and not Wichita, um, you st- it's just such a pleasant song to sing. Yeah, and there are a lot of those that are just so catchy because of the original song that's behind it. The the, the parodies, the footy ditties come up, uh, there's a number of criteria to make them a good one, yeah. and you've just named one of them. If the song is a classic, for example, Train to Montmorency mm-hmm. uh, just takes um, uh, City of New Orleans, uh, so you're kind of, as the saying goes, uh, John Clark said this, you're through to the semis without dropping a set. <laughs> If you start with a Wichita lineman or a City of New Orleans quality of song. Um, so that's one way you get a good ditty up. Other times it's just, it's the humour of it or sometimes it's the sentiment of it. Also mm. in this book about 20% aren't football. So after discussion with the publisher, um, I'm, qu- I- I'm sort of uh, more proud in a way of the uh, non-football a section of the book because they're more original songs and a few poems, um, even though it's always a risky business, th- anyone thinking they're a poet uh, that's publishable, <laughs> you decide if you see the book. But, um, you know, I mean, um, you know, like any probably would-be songwriter, I've been knocking out poems, you know, on and off for decades, and mm. a few of them have uh, got in here, and I'm proud of the section that's not football because it's probably more original stuff. Yes. However, on the football, which is 80% of it, yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, you, you put in the popular ones, that's the thing about football or Red Hot Go or mm. the better known ones, or I made 100 in the backyard at Mum's, which is about cricket, but falls into the um, non-footy part of the book. It does. And um, there's some really fun ones about uh, the different, I guess, elements of the modern game of football, which may not be that ideal. Um, one of them, I have played on the show, your new CD, and uh, so I've primed the audience with some of the ideas that we'll be talking about. Fat Side of the Ground, I really enjoy. And um, they kick it sideways. Uh-huh. Well, Fat Side, there's a classic example of take a, a monumental novelty classic, um, or always look on the bright side of life, mm. and just tweak it to always kick to the fat side of the ground. That there is a what you might call a lowest common denominator hoon pleaser. <laughs> you just that's an up the guts, you know, ob- yes. obvious tweak, and um, you don't have to do much to get the crowd. Riled up with you on yes. that one. Oh, totally. I'm on that side. Um, I'm so frustrated by the lack of up the guts. <laughs> I think that's why I have a soft spot for Brisbane in the uh, the vintage Brisbane of mm. the three peat premiers because that is one of the great features of that team. What they went up the guts a lot more than current Today. current teams. Um, we the could have been used the term up the guts excessively because um. Going back a few years, maybe five or ten, a listener wrote and said that they took exception to the use of the term up the guts on the ABC. Um, that it was a little too uh, un. How would you say? Uncouth. What were, well, yes. What would ever term you'd like to pick? A little uh, not classy enough for the ABC up the guts. Yeah. A bit, bit rude, bit vulgar. Bit vulgar, and so of course, as soon as we received that email, we just doubled up and uh, <laughs> can't stop saying it now. Mm. That's that is funny. Now, um, Greg, I th- I'm guessing that a lot of people listening are desperate to hear you sing some of them, just like I am. <sighs> I don't know um, uh, what how many um, uh, Triple R listeners uh, are across could have been, but we're about to find out anyway. This is exciting. I'm going to mm. wait and look at the phone and see how many lights mm. flash up. Right. Um, I, I'm certainly um, a massive fan. I do know that there are others at Triple R who would know of you from when you were here because we have listeners who listen for decades, which is so amazing. Well, well Archie Cuthbertson for one. Yes. He's still here. He is. And we knew him then. <laughs> he's, he's one of my favourite people of all time in Triple yeah. R, Archie. So yeah. fabulous. Yeah. Well, to stay 30 years in one station, he must have something good going on, you know, to uh, to ride it out. And he's seen off a few managers in his time yes. too. Absolutely, and uh, and he is um, yeah a great uh, drummer. So there's yeah. a fun fact for everyone. Well, um, he played with mates of mine in the early eighties, uh, early mid eighties. Uh, he was playing drums uh, with uh, friends' bands. But ah. knew him then. I love that. Um, so one of the songs that I find very moving for some reason is From Whence It Came. Yeah, it choice. does really get me, yeah. especially when you get everyone, um, you know, yeah. singing in, a, in the chorus. Yeah. Good what, point. Well said. Yeah. yeah. I, I was wondering whether it had similar, similar feelings. Um, would you like to go with one of the, the songs about, you know, the modern game of football, the style of play mm. to begin with? Before Look, we head into, like, football foot team stereotyping, which I'm excited about. Well, 
From whence it came, by the way, for our mm. listeners, is um, parodied on uh, Bob Dylan's uh, Forever Young. Well, there we talk about grabbing a classic and you're off to a hot start. Mm. Well, Forever Young is just such a big, big, big song. It and is. so um, that one came about because um, the listeners uh, – so this core group of contributors, they have a, they email chat group. They have their email chat group, which I'm on. So all week wow. long they workshop ideas. Mm. And particularly Richard Evans of Ocean Grove, they, they identify key phrases in football like the jungle drums or – um, trouble down there, or uh, from whence it came, which is something that commentators used to say and has sort of become a little bit sort of sentimental. Mm. So uh, we were looking for the right song for from whence it came, and we sorry for going on so long about one song. No, that's and, right. And be, uh, we probably need to share it with the recording with the listeners to for, so they can get involved with the song too, because it is anthemic and it a, is. a little bit moving. Mm. And uh, we tossed around a number of ideas for the right song for that one and it was Patty from Reservoir has a strong Dylan streak and she, after about eight or ten other attempts, uh, came up with uh, Forever Young. Well, that was the right vehicle and that song does move you. Um, And and we managed to get a reference to Drew Morfitt in there who uh, who mm. we lost uh, too young uh, about too young. 12 months ago. Mm. Yeah, I know it definitely affected people. Do you want to save that one for later then? Well, from whence it came needs the it, needs the big group. It, it does need a chorus but of I would give you But current themes, current themes, you can start with a cheese board song or you can start yeah. with Abandon the Bun. Oh, yeah, that's Abandon, a great one. That's You'd only get need a few bars of that. Now, is that guitar, uh, this mic up? I'm just checking. Oh, well, the way they wear their hair today Caused a lot of talk Well, can we just politely say It looks a little dorky Abandon the bun Abandon the bun Doesn't look so how can this go on? So abandon the bun. So that's a short all we need of that. <laughs> and the cheese board song is very current. Um, a big, a big favourite of mine and my sister's and many, many others. Yeah, it's turning into, uh, it's growing in its uh, request factor. This one. <laughs> And, of course, all triggered by a photo of a hipster with <laughs> avocado and cheese on the, his lap at a Melbourne game. Oh, that's a classic. In the in the, in in the, the members. members area, the members reserve. Yeah. Yeah. Meet me at the gym, at the gate where members go. That's where the crowd goes to get away from the boat. In the members stand Wave to mates of my old man And while the game's in play Our feast is so gourmet So come and join me for prosciutto, prosecco Smash that avocado A baguette, bruschetta Balsamic vinaigrette Some gouda, shaved ham Camembert and eat ham Some olives, blue Come on, number 14. 
on it goes. It does go on, yeah. And a great point there for those who may not be aware is that Melbourne fans tend to use the number of the player because they may not be really that across who they are. Well, that's the cliche or the stereotype yes, yeah, of the yes. D fan, so uh, we, we... It's a broad generalisation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're happy to keep it going. I think so. It's fair. It's definitely fair. One of my favourite songs of all time on the Melbourne theme is The D's Have a Buy mm. because it's just so mm. I guess it is that combination of the lyrics and the, the tune. Yes, Noel Dennison came up with the idea and, I, and it's mm. based on a Kamal pop, uh, pop hit and I didn't know it. Uh, so I, if I don't know the original I usually bypass it but this time I YouTubed it and it's just as well I did because it turned into one of the most popular ones. And and mm. the, and and uh, the reason it's popular is because not only does it say the D's have a buy, but um, but because it's um, there's some sentiment in there because people can feel when uh, relate to when their side is not playing mm. and when the G is not used on a Saturday afternoon it says all that in the song. Yes, it is. It's really very meaningful <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> can I put, can I quote you on our press publicity quote, Amy? Really, very meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> I'm, I stand by my comments. <laughs> uh, in the press for the book, that'll be number one uh, <laughs> critic's comment. <laughs> uh. So um, let's maybe head into another one. Mm. What what kind of songs do you think have stuck in terms of uh, team songs? Because there are quite a few. I know that you have said that uh, Hawthorne is the new Collingwood. Mm. I would also agree with that remark. Oh, well. Had a gut full of that Hawthorne Don't they make you want to spew It wouldn't be so bad if they played fair But everyone knows they're dirty mongrels Number five and number fifteen we know you know who you are As for number three as well That applies to you too They are the dirty mongrel hawks But even got more of a kick out of What a marvellous time for a grave dance With the hawks on the ladder so low That's the <laughs> intro of that one And... Um, we've had a few Hawk listeners email us complaining, protesting about uh, not pleased about mm. our Hawks baiting. Whereas Pies fans, we can give them f- f- all six <laughs> barrels and f- for decades without a without a whinge. They probably love it. The attention. I think they they're immune to it. Yeah. Whereas Hawk fans, nope. They're Which not. reminds me of one of your talkback callers. Is it Hayden from mm. <laughs> Glen Ferry Road? <laughs> He's always nasty about uh, uh, Hawthorne not getting a fair go on the program. Yes, and quotes a bit of Latin. <laughs> Which is hilarious. I did see on one of the recent Hawks banners a line of Latin on the banner and mm. I thought, is that some kind of reference? A, a nod to Hayden. Yeah. And it may have, may have been. It's cute, isn't it? I certainly yeah. didn't understand what on earth it said, <laughs> so I was going to have to like look up in a Latin dictionary. 
Uh, well, but uh, it's the uh, more sentimental ones that give me more pleasure in the long term. Mm. Um, you know, there's one, obvious ones that uh, will get a chuckle. You use those in your live act. Um, when it comes to the book and when it comes to the uh, non-football shows, it's nice to do some things like Witchy Proof Lyman because it's a nice song to sing. Mm. Um, but uh, still mucking around with club songs. Yes. Uh, we finished ninth again. The Richmond Tigers finished ninth again. In any season you will see it is our fate To miss out on the eight We win a few and lose a lot And then it is too late We just went down the drain We never were much good since 1982 Or until last year, of course Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you mentioned It's a grand old flag It looks good on the jag It's the emblem for us and not you It's the emblem of the fans that have A chalet and Range Rover too If you drive a brand new BMW Then we are the club for you Should old accountants be forgot Keep your eye on your share revenue (laughs) What's your side? My side is Geelong uh, of course. Say. I didn't really have much say in it, to be honest, because, mm. of course, where I come from. Yeah. Um, funnily, though, one of your songs does hit a note for me mm. for another team, which is that uh, about Fitzroy, mm. which I think it's um, deep in our hearts, everyone barracks for Fitzroy. I feel like that certainly transferred to me when I lived in Fitzroy North yeah. and Brisbane were, you know, on the up and I felt like they were almost my second team. Wow. Well, there's a song there that uh, taps into the sent the sent taps into the sentiment of football, mm. um, and that song also goes back to about 1990 as well. And and Fitzroy's place in the football firmament will is forever enshrined, and there are still people grieving the loss. Oh yes, for, and that'll <laughs> yes, that's going to go on. That just doesn't stop, does no it? No one will get over that they one. Won't. I don't think they don't get over <laughs> that. And, if, and we nearly lost Footscray and uh, a Melbourne Hawthorne merger, and there would be a lot more grieving still oh, mm-hmm. for the lost sides. North too have been endangered at times. So um, that's where. So I'll just do a little bit of it. Deep in our hearts, everyone barracks for Fitzroy. Whether we say we barrack for somebody else or not. Yes, deep in our hearts, everyone barracks for Fitzroy. Because Fitzroy is the most lovable team we've got. It's got many verses, but mm. so when we do these live shows like Father's Day, um, we try and make sure we still include deep in our hearts everyone breaks a Fitzroy because it's a representative of the more sentimental side of. 
football songs. Yes. And the reason why there is that sentiment is because football is part of people's whole lives often. It's, you know, a childhood memory, many memories, in fact. You know, my earliest memory is kicking a Geelong football on the road when obviously no one was coming down our street with my dad. (laughs) And seeing Gary Ablett Senior take some amazing marks and kick some really... Ripper goals. Yeah. yeah. We're a little short for Geelong songs, Geelong baiting songs. I did notice that. They're, yeah. they're a little bit more um, mm. sentimental around mm. the V-line and the Yu-Yangs. I saw the Geelong Geelong song there. Yeah. Um, there is... Uh, there is baiting on the talk back, though. There's Lance from Lara yeah. and um, is it mm. Peter? Peter from Peter. Yes. Um, there is the song, uh, It's a Long Way to Geelong when the cats are on at home. Yep, yep. Uh, which does uh, have a crack. But oh, normally we... Oh, yeah, look, there is this, though. Start spreading the news. I'm catching the train. I'm going to take that V-line to Geelong, Geelong. We're going to ride that Ferris wheel at Eastern Beach. And get some new tracky tacks from Dimmy's at Little Mallop Street. <laughs> that, um, those sites of Geelong, you just gotta see them. You will be knocked out by that National Wool Museum. And we'll admire those fine new yangs on our way through. And visit Werribee Mansion and. Werribee Zoo to that Lord of the Isles It's calling my name I'm gonna catch that train and toast Geelong, Geelong Then we'll have several spots in Cameron Ling's night spots Jericho calls Geelong, Geelong That seems like a very Geelong thing to... Nearly every Geelong footballer, it seems, has a restaurant or a pub or a nightclub. (laughs) (laughs) And you've got to have a crack at the Yu-Yangs. That seems to be your sort of like stereotyping. Uh, Have a crack at the water slide, but it's gone. It is, yeah. They're redeveloping that. Yes, the Sphinx has got to be in it. Gosh, yeah, yeah. The Sphinx, what a landmark it is. is. That is special. Yeah. (laughs) Good old Geelong. And we should mention that you are an Adelaidean and mm. an Adelaide Crows fan. Mm. Um, so, you know, you've certainly broken some hearts. St Kilda Hearts in the 97 grand final, I know, was particularly mm-hmm. strong. Same fans do not for- have not forgiven us. No. Understandably. Well, it was that golden era of Robert mm. Harvey and Stan oh. Elves. Oh, yes. Very special. Indeed. I'm, I'm hurting too. <laughs> I was there... Yeah. And when I saw that we were going to win, I looked at the fan- faces of the Saints fans and I wasn't comfortable. I could f- I'm I'm a little I'm, I'm not a proper football fan. I might be a little too empathetic to the uh, yeah. to the losing side and I looked at those old Saints fans who'd been waiting so long and I thought is is this is this the right outcome? Yeah. Is it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Um, the Crows had been in the comp seven years and the Saints had been waiting at that time 30 years for a mm. flag 
And I just thought, um, is this is this the right outcome? But but I but they happen regardless of your thoughts. <laughs> these outcomes they do, just like on the weekend. <laughs> just like gosh, just like three days ago. I feel like I got whiplash from that game. Uh-huh. It was very very shocking, really, to see that outcome just flip. I know it was close, but it felt like for at least the first half it was Collingwood's match. I can say, though, that after 36 years, could have been going 38 years and 36 for me, I can say, though, that the season uh, end uh, can't come soon enough yeah. and that's great to put it behind you and then not think about it or talk about it for six months. And um, whilst uh, it's still a, a joy and a privilege uh, to be on air with the Could Have Beans as much as the first time, um, the extra workload is um, mm. um, great to uh, escape from after the grand final. Yes. Because there's a lot of preparation goes into it now. Just for me, not the other chaps with the writing of the songs, try to come up with fresh songs each week. Eight of them are often. Mm. Um, not having that time pressure uh, is just fantastic when, uh, when the grand final comes. Now, Greg... We're running out of time. I mm. wanted to make sure we could fit mm. in what is uh, your song. Um, you collaborated still, but it is really one of the songs you're known for that mm. I'm pretty sure all of our listeners would have heard before, mm. which is the thing about football. Mm. It is a classic. Mm. Is it an honour to have that kind of classic in football history? Yes, it is, absolutely. And it just tells me that uh, it's often about a bit of luck and timing because I think I've written plenty of songs like that, but mm. uh, it's just that back then a certain person, Gordon Bennett on Channel 7 Sport, decided to anoint the song mm. and use it and um, you don't get a break like that every decade and I got that one and I haven't had one since. <laughs> I think you only need one. Well... It uh, is pretty good. Yeah, I like, I like three or four or five or six of the other ones to have the same break, yeah. but that's showbiz. It's getting there though. I feel like we're building up again with some of the latest ones. Good. They are total classics in my eyes. Yeah, nice. You can add that to the book front cover as well. <laughs> what was the other comment? Total Still classics. a beauty. What, can you remember the other comment? Oh, gosh. Uh, no, uh, truly meaningful. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one is a truly meaningful one. Do you want to uh, uh, okay. head out on this one? Okay, fine then. All right. All right. <laughs> if you have to. <laughs> How's the tuning there? Let's check that. Oh, yeah. When it comes out of a cold guitar case... Yeah, this uh, is very important for the ultimate outcome here. (laughs) (laughs) To make this truly meaningful... Yeah. Sounding pretty nice. We'll just get that one right. Yeah. Come on, behave there. I'll try that. I got my scarf, got my old coat I got a footy game to go to Footy's on, footy's here again Back to greet me like an old friend And hey, that's the thing about That's what I like about Hey, that's the thing about The thing about football I got a long road to walk down To catch a tram to my favourite ground You 
use my legs, use my voice, make some noise, support the boys, and that's what football means to me. That's how I like my footy to be, and hey, that's the thing about, that's what I like about, it's a thing about, the thing about football. Yes. <laughs> I shortened that up a bit. I, I that was thank you for that. It was really beautiful. <laughs> and truly meaningful. And truly meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> and a total classic. <laughs> the trifecta of Amy's comments. <laughs> so Greg, it's been amazing to have you in. I'm so glad that we've finally rectified this massive, uh, well, I don't know what to call it, but um, it's a bit of a faux pas on our part not having you back for so long. I think I'll be, um, you know, Triple R is a sort of, you know, kind of young in its vibe and we've, it could have been to become kind of old for, uh, to <laughs> be associated with it, but uh, it's nice to know we can cross that border, cross that no person's land, at least today this exactly morning. it's been truly meaningful. we are breaking records thank you greg um i have been speaking with greg champion who is a could have been champion of course you can listen to them not anymore this year um on in terms of football uh but you can listen to them next year well provided um the ducks line up you know it's depending never, on the abc well, it's managing said, director well <laughs> It's never a certainty, but um, hopefully season 39 will happen. Yes, yes. Mm. It's amazing that you've been on for so long and really a testament to the longevity of this. Well, 38 years is a fair whack, isn't it? It is. It's a big portion. Let's see if we can make 40 before we all drop off the perch. (laughs) It's been great to speak with you, Greg. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. That has been Greg Champion and you can get the book The Thing About Football, The Songs of Greg Champion so you can sing along to the classics and also Greg has a new album out which is uh, the latest volume three of the footy songs which I've been playing for you over the last uh, few weeks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.